with socio-political issues. One man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. Welcome, everybody. I hope you're all surviving the war on Christmas or whichever manufactured controversy you happen to practice in your home. It's Religion Month, and for this week's installment, I asked Mark Smith, professor of political science and adjunct professor of religion at the University of Washington to join me. I am still 100% in disbelief that I found someone who taught both subjects, but here we are. So Mark wrote a book called Secular Faith, How Culture Has Trumped Religion in American Politics, and it discusses how, contrary to what you might think, culture has actually shaped religious philosophy and by that political discourse rather than the other way around. And so I wanted to talk with Mark to get a better understanding of the role religions played in shaping political dialogue over the years. And last week I promised you a biblical case for slavery. This week I'm going to give it to you. But this being said, it is probably the least fascinating thing about our conversation. I'll be back at the end with closing comments. You know, so Mark, what obviously what brought us together was, uh, you know, me coming across your book, uh, Secular Faith, and and without the at the risk of maybe ham fisting the uh, the 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 content of the book, you know, basically what you what you say in it is effectively that uh, religious institutions, contrary to what's or religious dogma, I should say, contrary to what's probably popular, uh, what's popular belief, uh, actually change according to the changing mores of society rather than the other way around, rather than religion being sort of this immovable doctrine that society just follows. Is that more or less it or any nuances you want to add there? Yeah, that's more or less it. And no need to apologize for being ham fisted. I think for, <laughs> uh, as far as like a, you know, 30 second summary, I, I really like what you, what you came up with. Cool. Um, and, and I'm kind of arguing against what you um, or what, not just you, I, any person might expect to be the way these things work, mm-hmm. um, which is there's a perception that religion is kind of this, you know, kind of autonomous force and, and uh, different religions have, you know, different holy books or traditions or, or uh, prophets or whatever. And they have, um, at least in the Abrahamic traditions, certain moral principles that flow out of their, their scriptures or their traditions. And you would expect those moral principles to then drive people's moral beliefs. So it's really the um, religion is is the, the the force that's creating people's moral moral beliefs. And what I want to say is, often it's the other way around that people are grabbing ideas from the culture surrounding them, and they are they're not just uh, existing in this kind of free floating world where they're shaped only by their religion. They're shaped by you know, their family, the media, the, the neighborhood they grew up in, their, their friends, their, their, their peers, um, all kinds of other, other forces, the workplace, changing ideas, books they read, articles they, they read, podcasts they listen to. And so those forces then affect them. And then that puts pressure on the religious doctrines to adapt. And so that's, that's the part that I think you were trying to summarize. And I think, I think yeah. you did it nicely and that the religious doctrines, um, they aren't fixed and immutable. They, in fact, change with the times, and that's what the, the book tries to tries to show. Yeah, yeah, and I definitely credit myself with having a black belt and ham fisting it. So I appreciate the uh, the endorsement there. One of the one of the things I found really interesting was you describe the 
the biblical argument or or how the scripture was interpreted by different sides of the debate on slavery. And can you explain that a little bit for the for the folks listening? Sure. So slavery has been a human institution not quite since there have been humans, but at least since there have been humans on a large scale. So hunter-gatherer societies typically did not have slavery, but once we got settled agricultural systems, some people figured out, okay, if I'm going to have land, I need people to work on it, and you can do the work yourself, your family can do it. But wouldn't it be nice to have these other people who um, just do the work for me? Sounds like a pretty (laughs) good deal, right? Uh, And in the ancient world, the main way that someone became a slave was by being defeated in war. So... Mm. Uh, you know, it's sort of the old phrase, all, all sphere in love and war. And the way it generally worked in the ancient world was the winning side, you defeat the losing side, which means obviously you kill some of the opposing soldiers. What do you do with those that remain? Well, you take them capture, you capture them, you take them mm-hmm. prisoner, you bring them home, they become your slaves. And then some people might be born into slavery. Other people might say be sentenced for, for a crime. So there were, there were other means to become a, a slave. And occasionally, like, you might go out and, you know, capture someone and involuntarily, like, you know, force them so someone could become a slave that way through, through kidnapping. But the main, the main way was through, through prisoners of war. Yeah. And so the, the Bible reflects this. That was the standard practice throughout the ancient world. There are references in the Bible to enslaving war captives, that, you know, in, in the various uh, wars that, uh, and conflicts that the uh, ancient Israelites fought in. And then in the New Testament, it doesn't specifically refer to the means of becoming a slave, but it does refer to the institution of slavery. And uh, Paul is recorded on uh, you know many of his his books as saying slaves obey your masters, um, and uh, there's other references that slaves should consider their masters worthy of all honor. I believe that's in, uh, in in Titus. So so you have slavery in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. This was accepted for over 1700 years. So I've been, I've been searching for what's the first time anyone is on the record for, for claiming that the Bible opposes slavery. Okay. And the earliest I have found is around the year 1700, a, a, uh, a judge in Massachusetts named Samuel Sewell. He hmm. made, as far as I can tell, the first case that the Bible opposes slavery. Mm-hmm. Now, I, 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 and I say that, I'm trying to be careful with my words, because that does not mean that no Christians opposed slavery before that. It just means that no Christians thought that the Bible opposed slavery. So if you were a Christian before that, you, you might well have opposed slavery, and a minority of them did. Um, usually, the, where, the way it worked historically was it was okay to slay, enslave people from other groups, but not okay to enslave people from your group. And, and a lot of the earlier Christians that did oppose slavery, they, they kind of took that position that, no, nah, we can't enslave other Christians. And there was a d- dilemma like, what if you have slaves and then become a Christian? Do you then have to free them? There were those kinds of, of concerns. But for, for the most part, it was accepted. Slavery was okay. And to the extent that people disagreed, it was always, well, you can't enslave your own people, but you can, of course, enslave other people. Yeah. And then a, a tiny minority of Christians would just say, no, 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 you can't enslave anybody, Christian or not. But they were always the minority voice. And up until 1700, they didn't claim that the Bible opposed slavery. They made their arguments on other grounds. I guess then the, the second question I have for that is, were there cases where those biblical references justifying slavery were cited up until that moment in 1700? So, for example, maybe when slavery wasn't being widely debated in the earlier history of our country or in other countries that had slavery, was that pulled up or was it only when the 
anti-slavery movement, the abolitionist movement came about that then they started sort of dueling with Bible passages, so to speak? Yeah, that's a good question you raise. Certainly once there becomes a controversy around slavery, that's when people start talking about it publicly and actually making arguments. So for most of the previous 1,700 years, you didn't have to make public arguments about it because it was just a generally accepted practice. Now, in the, in the case of, of Europe, it did kind of die out in the Middle Ages and got replaced by, by serfdom. Mm-hmm. Um, it didn't die out in, in, in the Arab world, in the, in the Muslim world. But in, in Europe, it, it, it did die out. And so during, during that period, you didn't have slaves, but you had serfs. And, and, and those, those labor statuses are related. If you're a serf, you're tied to the land. You're not, you're not free to move. But you're not owned in the same way you are as a slave. So if, and, and the other tricky thing here is, is that um, the Bible has both indentured servitude and slavery. Yeah. And so it's, it's a tricky matter because sometimes some people who are, who are wanting to defend the Bible – they will say, "Oh no, no, no! There, there's no slavery in the Bible. It, that, that's indentured servitude." And they will—they can actually point you to specific passages where it says, "You know, if you if you buy a, a Hebrew servant, you can you know keep him from a certain number of years, and they they have to be free during the jubilee, and then there are yeah. restraints on what you can do to your to your servant." And that's of course all in there. It's just the Bible also has slavery, and and other passages refer to buying human beings, holding them as property willing them to your defendants and selling them. And that's what I mean by, by slavery. It means the ownership of human beings as property. Yeah. You know, in, in preparing for this conversation, I, I went back to my Catholic school roots and started digging through some of the passages. And I think my favorite one is from Leviticus, where foreigners offered for sale are totally cool. So you can buy a foreigner, no problem. However, mistreating foreigners is 100% prohibited. So somewhere in the book of Leviticus, slavery does not equal mistreatment. So kind of getting back to you know the, how this is all being interpreted in 18th and 19th century, you know, obviously now there's absolutely zero debate as to the morality or immorality of slavery. Nobody's ever going to go back into the Bible and maybe reopen the question or the debate on slavery because of these passages in the New Testament and the Old Testament. So, like, when was that issue dead in American history? Well, really, with the Civil War. I mean, yeah. we, we had we had uh, legal slavery right, right up to that point. And as far as how's it become, how does it become a controversy earlier? Yeah. In the early part of the American colonial period, all of the original 13 colonies had had slaves. So yeah. people these days will think of slavery as that was an exclusively Southern problem. It was a bigger Southern problem in terms of slaves as a proportion of the population and as a proportion of the economic production. But there were slaves in every single one of the original uh, 13 colonies. And when it when it first started, it, it really wasn't a matter of, of public dispute. There, there was some debate about um, when the, the, the first, what we now call slaves, were, were purchased in, uh, in the Virginia colony um, in 1619. What was going to be the status of those people? Could they ever be free? Could they buy their freedom? And, and so on. It took a, a kind of a few decades for that to, to, to settle in with uh, specific chattel slavery and it, and it being racialized. But once that, that happens, it's really not up for, for dispute. So throughout the rest of the, the 17th century and through most, most of the 18th, uh, it, it really wasn't a matter of, of public controversy. Uh, to the extent it became a controversy, uh, and this is an interesting part of the history, it starts with an unorthodox Christian group who first raises it. And these are, these are Quakers. 
So okay. some Quakers in, in Pennsylvania at the end of the 17th century, this is the first document we, we know of in any of the American colonies where anybody objects to slavery. And if you think about the Quaker branch of, of Christianity, uh, it kind of makes sense that you need some unorthodox thinkers to even get the debate going. Because as I say, uh, up until 1700, no one had ever tried to claim that the Bible opposes slavery because it's just, it's such a hard case to make. You've mm-hmm. got to do a lot of really creative interpretation. And I do mean creative in the, se- in the same sense as creative accounting. Like you, you yeah. really have to, to distort the text heavily to try to get rid of slavery. But what, what Quakers were, were interesting in that they, they didn't base their doctrines on the Bible, or at least not exclusively on the Bible. They, they had a notion of, of the Holy Spirit moving through the, through the community. And, and so Quakers, they, they were stripping away a clergy. So, so they, it was kind of a leveling sort of, of doctrine where everyone is equal. Everyone can speak in meetings, both men and women. They were distinctive on allowing women to speak in their, their meetings. Mm-hmm. And they were downplaying the Bible and upplaying the sense that the, um, the spirit was moving through an individual and then through that individual, through the entire community. Mm-hmm. And so they, because they have these kind of radical doctrines around equality, that's really built into their whole fabric. It, it's easy for them to then make the leap and say, Hey, wait a minute, we have these beliefs about equality and we try to structure our, our, our worship meetings in this way. Is it okay for one person to own another person as property? And so they could make that, that leap and, and then conclude, no, it's not, that's not okay. But interestingly, even among the Quakers, some of the, some of the ones as early as the, the end of the, the 17th century, they, they were claiming that, but there were still slaves owned by Quakers up through the first half of the, of the 18th century. So it really takes until, um, you know, like 1750s, 1760s until within Quakers, there's no slave ownership. And then they are able to then press the case to other Christian groups. And eventually some of these other Christian groups do come around and they start reinterpreting the Bible to make it oppose slavery. Okay. So it, so it, then the whole abolitionist movement really originated with the Quakers then, and they kind of proselytized it across to other Christian sects. Is that correct? Yes. They were there first. They, they, they eventually by, by winning, you know, adherence, then other groups kind of join, join in, but they, they were certainly there first. And now the interesting thing too is that there's there are some parallels between the debate and the or I should say the evolution of the debate on slavery and the evolution the more recent evolution of the debate on homosexuality and on gay marriage is that right? Yes, I I do think there's a lot of overlap in in uh, in a few important respects. I mean, one of them is I think it's pretty obvious to anyone who just you know, doesn't have an ax to grind. If you just read the Bible straight up, slavery mm-hmm. is okay. Mm-hmm. Similarly, if you just read the Bible straight up, homosexuality is not okay. There are, are, are uh, you know, seven different passages that, that quite explicitly refer to homosexual behavior. Now, people debate, does this mean like a homosexual orientation? And, uh, and, and do they even have the category of like a committed same-sex relationship? Um, and, and so on. And, and you know, the, those debates are worth having. But at least the practice of, of having a sexual relationship with a person of the same sex, that is thoroughly condemned in the Bible several times in several places. Yeah. And so with both of these, it's, it's really an open shut case if you just read the text. Mm-hmm. But one of the points I tried to make in the, in the book is, well, it's, it's never just the text. 
and actually this point is not really original to me. I mean, I think this is kind of an obvious point by this, by this time and lots of people make it in terms of interpreting anything, whether it's a novel, uh, scriptures, the constitution, whatever people yeah. bring to the text, some assumptions with them. And often they want the text to say certain things. And alas, sometimes the text doesn't say what you want it to say. But if, if you're, a, if you're a smart person, and you're kind of clever with words. You can say, well, you know, I know it says this, but that really means something else. And if you look at the context of the times. And then if you look at this other passage and use that to reinterpret this other one, then we can get this whole new new uh, idea emerging. And so that's, I argue that's what happens with, with slavery. And then that's also what happens with homosexuality. Now, okay. much later, right? Because homosexuality is pretty widely condemned both in America and really throughout the world in the East, the West, like in developed countries, less developed countries, you know, pr pretty close to universally up until, you know, 19th century, we start getting some movements in the 20th century. And then by the middle of the 20th century, some people are, are saying, you know, out in society at large, Hey, some people have attractions to members of the same sex. Why are we condemning people for whom they love? Mm -hmm. uh, now, Today, that's kind of a, a commonplace observation. But if you were to say that in 1950, that was a radical claim. Uh, yeah. So there were people making that claim, but they were a, a small minority. But once that claim is out there and, and some people start interacting with it, eventually some Christians end up accepting that claim. And then they go back and they revisit their scriptures and they say, well, yeah, I know everyone has thought that for 2000 years, our scriptures condemn homosexuality, but... Do they really condemn homosexuality? And there's a lot of clever moves that you can make to try to kind of get rid of what looks to be clear-cut condemnations of homosexuality um, in the Bible. Yeah, I mean, and I would say the history for ignoring biblical text is as long as the history for listening to it. Because again, like if you go back to some passages, especially in the Old Testament and especially in Leviticus, you've got a bunch of things you're not allowed to do, you know, tearing your clothes, uh, eating shellfish, right. drinking, drinking alcohol in holy places, which pretty much every Catholic does. So one of the, one of the big questions I have, especially around the, the debate around gay marriage, the debate around homosexuality, is that, you know, in the case of the slavery debate, and not to say that this makes it morally right, but it, there was an economic case. There was a case where I, as a plantation owner, am going to have my entire source of revenue disrupted if I lose slaves. And again, not to say that that's justified, but just to say you can understand where somebody might hold tight to that. A any idea why the issue, why homosexuality has been such a lightning rod, maybe more so in the, in, in now 20 years ago, but any idea why that was such a political lightning rod where there was no clear economic case? Is it just mm -hmm. people's belief systems being, uh, being challenged? Is it maybe there was some political advantage to certain people jumping on the issue? Like, what is it? Right. Well, I, I think you're right. Economics can certainly be an important driver of behavior. And uh, I think it was, was it Upton Sinclair who said, it is very hard to get a man to do something that is not in his financial interest. Mm -hmm. um, it, it was so, something similar to that. Yeah. And so once uh, once slavery becomes well-established, as you say, uh, plantation owners and even smaller scale slave owners, if you've paid money for a slave, you're not going to look too kindly to the government coming in saying, hey, I, I got a great idea. 
How about we ban slavery and you lose your property? I mean, obviously a person's going to resist that and then they will make up whatever reason they can come up with to try to, to try to try to justify it. And of course the, the plantation owners um, did that. But having said that economics is a powerful driver of people's moral beliefs. It's not the only driver of people's moral beliefs. And we, we, as, as human beings, we are creatures that are really moral by nature and, and by moral, I don't necessarily mean we always act morally. I mean that we, we have notions of right and wrong and th- those, those can come from a lot of different sources, but once, once they form in our head, they can be very powerful drivers. So even though there's not really much of an economic stake in the, in the debate over, over homosexuality and same-sex relationships, people nevertheless have a values stake at play they have their their beliefs and for some people it's very threatening to tell them uh hey uh Mm -hmm. you know well i know you might think that it's it's uh it's wrong for for someone to have a sexual relationship with with the same person of the same sex but i don't think that's wrong and we ought to allow that behavior for for some people that's going to be a very strong threat to their values and then they're gonna they're gonna mobilize against it and so Mm -hmm. one of the things that you had from you know, really the 1960s up, up until the, the first decade of the 21st century, and arguably maybe even still today, you have an LGBT rights movement. And of course, it wasn't called that until relatively recently. It might have been called, you know, a gay liberation movement or, or, or some other, other label. But yeah. you had uh, people actively mobilizing across all of society's institutions, you know, f- using the media and uh, working through employers and and in uh, universities and, and elsewhere to try to get their message out to that society should accept same-sex relationships. So you had a movement pushing that, but then meanwhile you had a counter movement, largely from Christian conservatives, especially uh, on the Protestant end of things, but th- to some extent Catholics as well, saying no, this is morally wrong. This is our our tradition, you know, our scriptures, our history. Tell our God tells us that this is wrong. And we're not going to let this stand. So you had you kind of this fight for a few decades between an, an LGBT movement and the Christian conservative movement or, or the so-called Christian right. And so though, even though no economics is, was really at stake in that debate, I mean, I, I guess you could argue that it is, to, it is to, somewhat at stake. Like if you're, a, if you're a gay person and you can't get housing because you're, you know, landlord, as soon as they find out you're gay, they, they you know, they evict you that then becomes an economic issue. So I wouldn't yeah. want to say that there's no economics at play at all, but economics nevertheless isn't the main driver of the debate. Yeah. And, you know, I'll, I, I tend to take a cynical view about things like these. And, you know, one of the things I was reading up on not too long ago was, was Richard Nixon and his whole Southern strategy. And, mm-hmm. and, a, and a lot of that, and I guess for the people listening who aren't familiar with this, you know, really Richard Nixon and the Republican Party as a whole made a very concerted effort to go after Southern Democrats who had soured on their own party due to the party's stance on civil rights or their pro-civil rights stance. And my understanding of part of that strategy was that evangelicals, Southern evangelicals, played an especially important role there. And so I wonder if there was some benefit politically to taking that hard line on homosexuality. Because if you have a bunch of Southern evangelicals who are really critical to your electoral success, that's a real easy issue to get people riled up on. Do you think there's any merit to that stance or is there any evidence to back that up or is that just kind of a half cock theory i'm throwing out there no i think you're this not not half cocked at all and 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 politicians 
at the end of the day, they want to get votes, right? Mm -hmm. If you're you're running for elected office, if you can't get votes, you you can't win. Now, you don't always need to get a majority of the votes. You know, we have the Electoral College and all all that. But Mm -hmm. nevertheless, you need at least some number of votes. And if you go back to the the 1960s, 1970s, into the 1980s, homosexuality was extremely unpopular among the the, the general American public. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, if you look at, say, media coverage of, of gay rights protests in the, in the 1970s, 1980s, it's not really very favorable coverage at, at all. And back then, and we do have some some more systematic measures. There's this long-running survey called the General Social Survey that a lot of political scientists and sociologists and other, other people use. And the earliest data we have on this was in 1973. And it's been run either every year or every other year up until now. Mm-hmm. And one of the questions they ask is, do you think that sexual relationships between people of the same sex, it's always wrong, it's sometimes wrong, it's neither right nor wrong, it's uh, always right or sometimes right. Back in the, the 1973, when this question was first asked, you get like 10% of the public saying that homosexual relationships are, are morally acceptable, 10%. Mm-hmm. And it, that figure it's pretty flat throughout the 1970s, throughout the 1980s, and up until the beginning of the 1990s. It's at about 1992 when that finally starts to shift. So if I'm a politician in the 1970s, 1980s, and if you're a vote-seeking politician, you're going to say, well, I think homosexuality is wrong, and, and I know there are people pushing to change this, but we gotta we got to take a firm stand here on traditional values and you know uphold the family and, and you know reject this uh, this moral licentiousness that's arising in our society. And that, that's a pretty powerful message in the 1970s and 1980s. And so I think your your take on Nixon, I mean, he wasn't really pushing the uh, homosexuality issue with, with his Southern strategy, but he certainly was pushing some racially tinged messages. He was certainly pushing the law and order message. And mm-hmm. uh, so he, he picks up Southerners on those grounds. But then some later candidates, you see this in, in, in uh, you know, Ronald Reagan, he does say some things uh, opposing uh, homosexuality. And by that point, you, you did have this, the, the counter movement, the Christian right that was on the scene. And so that, that's a pretty good you know, message to, to use as a, as a vote-getting device. I also see that with, with uh, abortion as well, which again was, was not a, a Republican issue, or at least the stance against abortion was not a Republican issue, even in the seventies. Uh, I mean, right. you know, George H. W. Bush was pro-choice up until I want to say up until at least nineteen, up until around nineteen eighty. Mm-hmm. Now, are, are there signs of that issue developing, or are both sides still relatively hard and fast to their stance? They're both relatively hard and fast to their stance. So it's really interesting when you compare um, homosexuality and abortion over the last few decades. Uh, so I mentioned that back in 1973, only 10% of the American public thought that same-sex relationships were morally acceptable. Now that's over 50%. Mm-hmm. So you get a, a lot of change in you know four and a half decades. On abortion, the percentage of people taking various responses as, you know, it's always wrong, sometimes wrong, uh, never wrong. And, uh, and there's different ways you can ask, ask questions. But however you, you ask them, public opinion on abortion is roughly flat from the early 1970s to the present. Really? So in, in, the, in the larger debate, nobody is gaining ground. Nobody is, is losing ground. And so as a result, 
being strongly opposed, say, to, to same-sex marriage, that quickly went from being a winning political strategy to now it is a losing political strategy. And it's kind of interesting how it, that issue is really even dropped off the map of, of uh, you know, Republican leaders. Yeah. They're not, they're not saying, hey, this, there, there were this pressure and we had this bad Supreme Court decision and we need to go back and revise that or maybe pass a constitutional amendment to get rid of it. I mean, you just don't hear that message. But on abortion, the public is still so divided that if you push a strong pro-life or anti-abortion message, you can get a lot of votes through that. Now, you're going to alienate some people as well, but it is, it's at least a viable political strategy in the way that taking a strong anti-gay strategy is no longer viable. Mm-hmm. And, and if you look around the country, um, I'm not sure where, you're, where, where, you're, where you live and where you're recording from. Um, you know, I live here in Washington State, and it, it's a very blue state, and, and the abortion laws are um, – uh, abortion is pretty easily accessible here. But in, in a lot of red states around the country, they're, they're passing a lot of laws to either try to ban – come close to banning abortion outright or banning it after a few weeks or putting so many rules and regulations on abortion clinics that it's a kind of impossible for them to operate. So you've got states like Kansas, uh, Mississippi and, and others where you've got something like, you know, one abortion clinic in the entire state where you could get a surgical uh, a- abortion. And so in a lot of ways, our abortion laws are becoming a lot more restrictive, even though public opinion is roughly flat in the places where, where Republican conservatives are dominating in, in state government, they're passing very tight abortion laws, and, and uh, it's, it's likely to come before the Supreme Court again sometime in the near future uh, as far as what, whether those laws are going to withstand constitutional scrutiny. You know, I guess then if we, if we take that issue specifically and we kind of get back to the, to, the, to the premise of your book, which is the idea that culture shapes religion, then – is it fair to say that maybe culturally we're still the same on abortion and as a result, the religious interpretations haven't changed. And as a result, the political calculus as to whether you support or oppose abortion as a politician hasn't changed. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you picked up on that because that is precisely what I, what I claim. And, and, and so furthermore, if the culture did a major shift on abortion, I would predict that the doctrines would shift to catch up. Mm -hmm. Um, so, I mean, this is a, an interesting thing um, in, in terms of the history of Christianity and its relationship to, to abortion. Mm-hmm. On, on the Catholic end, end of things, relatively early in the church's history, it did come down um, uh, opposing abortion. And uh, there was a, a debate for a long time about you know, when insolment happens and, and there's a, you know, quickening when a when woman first feels a movement of, of the baby mm-hmm. uh, and so on. So all those things are, are kind of in the background. But among Catholics, there's been a, a, at least doctrinally, that doesn't mean individual Catholics always, always agree, but at least, um, you know, kind of the formal positions of the church among the theologians and councils and so on. You, you've had strong opposition to abortion for, you know, centuries, for pretty close to the whole, whole history of the, of the church. Whereas on the Protestant end of things, it was actually a lot looser until relatively recently. So okay. even among groups that today we would call conservative Protestants, um, you know, in the 17th century, 18th, 19th, even most of the 20th, they were not, they were conservative on a lot of things, but they weren't necessarily conservative on, on abortion. Uh, and, and part of this, of course, is wrapped up in Protestant Catholic splits. And so it was kind of seen as a Catholic thing. And, you know, mm-hmm. we Protestants, you know, we're not going to just go along with, with what, the, what, you know, what the Catholic church says. And so 
there was there was a more permissive attitude toward abortion among among conservative Protestants until the 1970s. So in the wake of the Roe v. Wade decision in 1973, uh, some some of the Protestant groups start at that point to take a strong stand. You know, a few years later, and if you look at say the Southern Baptist Convention as the largest of the conservative Protestant uh, denominations through the 1960s up until the early 1970s they had what today we would consider a more permissive abortion stance of saying, uh, well, there's some certain conditions under which it should be acceptable and, and you know, this should be, uh, uh, the law should accommodate that and, and so on. But by the end of the 1970s, they had taken a strong opposition to abortion saying, no, this is an immoral practice. This is, uh, we, we need to ban it uh, entirely. And so that, that Protestant position is really a relatively new uh, phenomenon and, uh, and, and of course, has shaped the, the subsequent four and a half decades of, of history, because even uh, you know, still at this point, there's about twice as many Protestants in America as there are Catholics. So once you get that strong opposition, especially from conservative Protestants, you inject a new kind of dynamic in, into our politics where there's now a constituency for these laws that are strongly opposed to abortion. So. The, the Protestant opposition didn't really come until Roe v. Wade. Do you think that their stance was more a reaction to Roe v. Wade in a way? So they they didn't necessarily take a stance because you didn't have to. It wasn't necessarily the law of the land. But then once it became the law of the land, that created the controversy. Is that the case or or is it or did something change within them that just they became more hardened against the issue? You know, I think this is a tricky question mm-hmm. because whatever case you might might make, so, so, so today a conservative Protestant might say, hey, uh, uh, you know, life begins at conception, and so therefore uh, the human being uh, exists from a fertilized egg, therefore abortion is wrong, mm-hmm. abortion is murder. Well, all right, interesting idea, but why weren't you saying that in the early 1970s? Why weren't you saying that in the 1960s, 19, 1950s? So... Something happens to make that become a palatable position in a way that it wasn't before. And I haven't done extensive research on this, so I'm, I'm just kind of speculating here. But I think what, what's happening is the 1970s is, a, is an important transition period where there have been a lot of changes in American society coming out of the 1960s, you know, sexual yeah. revolution, um, you know, younger people rebelling against authority, you know, opposition to the, to the Vietnam War, civil rights. So... Uh, the kind of the society is in, is in flux and, uh, you know, premarital sex is becoming more accepted and, and um, people living together before getting married and all, all sorts of, of uh, those kind of phenomenon. And I think what some of the, the conservative Protestant religious leaders were doing was they were looking for some kind of anchor, some kind of bedrock where they can say, okay, are we going to go out and condemn everyone for having premarital sex? Well, th- they did some of that, but that's kind of a tricky matter because once so many people are having premarital sex, do you want to, from the pulpit on Sundays, you know, continue to condemn a practice that a lot of your parishioners and congregationalists, frankly, are engaging in? Uh, that's probably not going to be such a popular position. But abortion is a different matter because it's kind of a discrete event. It, it, it's, uh, it's not something that, you know, anybody's going to do like, you know, a hundred times in, in their life to the extent that a woman has an abortion. It might be, you know, once or twice or, or, or three times. Mm-hmm. And because it's discreet, you could kind of coordinate off. You could take a strong stand on that issue and say, okay, we're, we're having to give ground on a lot of these other matters, but here's something where 
we're going to take a strong stand here and we're just going to be firm. We're not going to, we're not going to give an inch. Yeah. And so it kind of works as, as an anchoring point of saying, is there anything we believe in that we won't give up? Yeah. Here's the thing we believe in. We won't give up. Abortion is wrong. Life begins at conception. This is our position and we're sticking to it. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny in an earlier episode, I was covering the, the gun issue in the second amendment. Mm-hmm. And in speaking with a, with a law professor, you know, one of the things that he mentioned was that really the Constitution says kind of what you want it to say, something you mentioned a little earlier. And it really exists as sort of a platform where we can have conversations around difficult subjects without the anxiety of knowing that there's going to be a rash decision to govern one way or the other on this issue. It's sort of like the like the couples counselor for the United States in a way. And it almost sounds like, in the way you describe it, religion almost plays a similar stabilizing role where there's, where again, you know, the scripture says just about everything. And what you take out of it or what you, or, or how you apply it uh, is, is usually based on the conditions of the day. And so uh, when there is something important to you, there is some huge societal shift, like you saw during the Vietnam era, for example, religion serves as a way to have conversations about fundamental cultural change without, again, the anxiety of society vacillating strongly in one way or the other. Does that make sense? Is that right? Or am 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 I kind of off base there? No, I, I like what you're saying there. That, that makes a lot of sense to me that that um, um, just in the same way that the Constitution becomes, if not a determining force on a lot of these debates, it, it provides a, a, a platform for discussion or a starting point for discussion. Mm-hmm. And the Bible does often work that way for at least the, the Protestant religious groups. With on, on the Catholic side, you have both the Bible and, and church tradition that are feeding in to, uh, into that debate. Um, and, uh, I mean, you can, you can take this argument and you can, you can push it all the way where you, where you become a postmodernist, where you say, well, the text, it doesn't mean anything. It's, yeah. it's just a bunch of words on a page. This is, that's a direct quote from, uh, Reza Aslan, uh, religious scholar. Uh, he's a postmodernist. He, he thinks that the text it's, it's, it's completely inert and it's totally malleable and you can make it say whatever you want it to say. Now, my position is that people do often manipulate the text, mm-hmm. but I think that there really is a core underneath it that um, there is a quote truth to the matter, mm-hmm. and, and for for uh, and you can find that truth if you do close enough study and you want to look at the the context of the times and you have to of course know the meaning of the words and ideally you're reading the text in its original languages and you're looking at the history of interpretation, and so I would differ from from Aslan in that I would say that. There were these reinterpretations that happened on slavery and later happened on, on homosexuality. But I would, I would claim people really are making stuff up and they're, they're, they're forcing the text to say what they want it to say. Whereas he would claim, well, the text never said anything in the first place anyway. It's just a Rorschach test. So it means whatever you want it to mean. And so I, I, I part company at that point. I think that people have a tendency to read into their texts what they want. But I would claim that's actually a disreputable practice. That mm-hmm. that you're this is sort of cheating, right? Yeah. Uh, that that if you were an, if you were honest, you would you wouldn't you wouldn't do that. And I, by here I mean intellectually honest. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I do think that those reinterpretations that that I, I'm not, I, I that 
they can, you know, um, take you out of the realm of the history of the text and the meaning of the text and where it's clearly the person speaking rather than the, than, than the text speaking. Understood. Understood. So, you know, if we go back to slavery, then, you know, obviously, you know, our, our current position on slavery as a society is, isn't aligned with the Bible, isn't aligned with the scripture. So, you know, obviously there's a, there's a core message to the scripture. There's a core message to those words. How do we decide when to deviate and when to follow, or how do we decide what to throw out and what to keep? Is there any logic to it or? Yeah. So it's a tricky matter. If you're not a Christian, then you're not really bound to the Bible anyway. And so you can treat it as a text in the same way that you would treat, you know, Shakespeare or Plato or Confucius or or whoever. And you, you might read it. I, I would advise anyone who is not a Christian to nevertheless be familiar with that foundational text of both Christianity and to some extent, you know, really all of the West know what it says. And you could probably, even if you're not a Christian, learn a lot from it and, and, you know, interact with it. And those would be productive um, interactions. But if you're not a Christian, you don't have to accept what's in there because it's not, it's not scripture for you. If you are a Christian now, it's a, it's a more difficult matter because for you, at least in principle, you're supposed to, t- if this really is God's revelation, if this really is God speaking to you through a written document, mm-hmm. it behooves you to take that seriously. And I would think you would be really cautious to discard something that was in the Bible just because you don't like it. You, that that's, uh, you, you know, that that's cheating again. That's, that's something you just, you just can't do. Mm-hmm. And, and so for, it's really, it's not a problem for the non-Christians, but for the Christians who find things in their text that they don't like, uh, it's a tricky matter. Now, if it comes down to the choice of, do I leave, do I accept that the text is flawed? Therefore, my religion is flawed. Therefore, hmm, maybe I shouldn't be in this religion in the first place. Well, a lot of people, they just can't go there. That, yeah. That's just a, 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 a bridge too far. And so it's easier to say, well, I'm going to keep my religion. And yeah, it kind of looks like there's some bad stuff in the text, but if you interpret it the right way, then the stuff isn't as bad as you think and get this creative new interpretations. That becomes kind of a face-saving way to, uh, to stay in the religion. And, and so as a practical matter, that's what a lot of people do. Mm-hmm. And, and once again, I think that's a disreputable practice because I, I think that's cheating. I think that when you, when you manipulate the text to make it say what you want it to say rather than what everybody has understood it to say for 1700 years or 2000 years um, that that's, that's, uh, that's not an intellectually honest practice. Well, I'd say, you know, I was raised in a very conservative Irish Catholic upbringing. And so, you know, when I was a kid, I had all the, the standard trappings of a, of a good Irish Catholic boy philosophically. And of course this is back in the eighties when people thought much differently. My philosophical transformation happened over time but I will say that the one thing religion kind of forces you to do is at least think really hard when you're going to go off road. And I think that's what I'm hearing in part in what, in, in what you're saying. The last question I have for you is amongst developed nations, religion seems to be more important in America than anywhere else. Yes. You know, it seems to be more important culturally, more important politically. Any idea why that is? It's certainly a well-studied topic among sociologists, political scientists, economists, and others who study study religion. 
And just like any big phenomenon, there are competing theories on you know why that's the case. Uh, broadly speaking, we can divide these into kind of supply explanations and, and demand explanations. Mm-hmm. So the, the supply explanation says that that people having a need for certain things that religions can deliver, and that if you have a situation where there's kind of a free open marketplace for a religion, different mm-hmm. religions and different traditions within the same religion will all sprout up. They will compete for followers, and then you'll get kind of the more successful ones in enduring. And so according to that that explanation, the reason that we have a lot of uh, strong presence of religion in America by comparison, say, to most of the West or even even to places like Japan, is that we've had a very open religious marketplace. We've had the First Amendment. We've had disestablishment of churches relatively early in the nation's history or, or late in the colonial period, and that therefore new religious entrepreneurs can come on the scene. So you get groups like the Pentecostals cropping up in the 20th century, you get the Mormons in the, in the 19th century, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses and, and lots of others. And, and so you get this kind of dynamism. And then because it's a, a relatively unregulated marketplace, different religious entrepreneurs can try out different ideas and then they will find a, a following for them. So that's kind of broadly one explanation for why America is more religious than, than the rest of the West is uh, that we've had a more open religious marketplace with the First Amendment and with you know disestablishment early on. And then the competing explanation would be a demand explanation. And it says that Americans in a way have a greater need for, for religion. Mm-hmm. Um, so w- why would people have a need for religion? Well, for one thing, if they lack security, if they lack economic security, where uh, churches traditionally have been a place where in, in, for a lot of a lot of American history, it, it becomes kind of a private welfare state where if you are struggling, someone from your church will help you, or or uh, people will will get together. So it it becomes a, a support network. And, and if you have a lot of inequality, which America has always had a lot of by comparison to other Western countries, mm-hmm. you you always have kind of this fear of well, how well am I doing? How how Am I doing relative to other people? And how far could I fall if I fall? And the thing about America is we have a lot of billionaires. We also have a lot of homeless people. We really have the full spectrum. And so the demand explanation says in an environment where you know that you could do fabulously well, you could also fall on your face. You kind of need this, this certainty that, that religion provides where Hey, there's some God uh, out there that's, you know, look at overseeing all this and he's taking care of everything. And it looks like the world's all messed up, but he's got a plan and it's all going to work out in the end. And that those messages become more appealing in a place like America, where you have the insecurity, where you have the inequality, where you have the, the fear of, of falling. And so th- th- those are the two main explanations, the supplied explanation and the demand explanation. And like a lot of phenomena, if, if, if there's something out there and people say, hey, there's two main theories for why it exists, they don't have to be mutually exclusive. It could be that they each give us part of the, uh, the answer, um, or it could be one of them's right and the other one's wrong. But yeah. um, among scholars, that's kind of how it, how it tends to d- divide out. Yeah, I don't see a reason to fight one or the other, although I have to say the whole free market enabling uh, the thriving of churches is definitely something that uh, the Cato Institute's going to be psyched about. So uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> glad we yeah. got that out there. Well, I'm glad you see the parallel to that because yeah. uh, there, there is a strong, a strong linkage there. I got it. Got it. All right. Well, thanks for joining me uh, and uh, you know, just really appreciate your perspective. It's really, really just interesting stuff. 
Yeah, sure thing. It's a fun conversation. So I'm, I'm pleased that you proposed uh, it. So surprise. If we're to interpret the Bible literally, then the bad guys won in both the Civil War and the gay marriage debate, and I don't think that's a bridge a lot of us want to cross. Now, this being said, as someone who was raised Catholic, I am exceptionally familiar with the practice of ignoring a whole bunch of things the Bible tells you to do or not to do, and I'll challenge anyone listening to this who considers him or herself a follower of the literal word of Christ to tell me exactly how they're doing it because the Bible pretty much prohibits everything. You know, if we dig into Leviticus, for example, you can't eat fat, tear your clothes, eat shellfish, trim your beard, let your hair become unkempt, or give your children to be sacrificed to Molech. I think the last part's something we can all get behind, but the rest of those rules are pretty much ignored. And, you know, in my estimation, and I'm editorializing here, religion almost serves the purpose as a cultural yellow light that provides us a way to monitor our behavior as a society and put thought into any deviations from the norm. And, you know, in some ways we benefit from the stability, but if you find yourself outside those norms, as many did prior to the acceptance of gay marriage, you know, you're effectively forced to be a victim as these debates take place. And we see a similar pattern with our Constitution, where injustices such as Jim Crow had to be played out in the courts before a segment of the population could be lifted from the role of second-class citizens. And, you know, a question for all of us to ask is, how do we continue to benefit from the stabilizing roles things like our Constitution and religious texts play and still allow for a quick resolution when issues of injustice arise? I am definitely not answering that one today, so you're all just going to have to deal with it and do some thinking of your own over the holidays. Now, next week, the data monkey comes swinging in from the number jungle to cap off the month. Hope you'll join me. As always, theme music courtesy of FellerTech, sound quality courtesy of Jason Putney, the New Testament to my Torah. This is Dan Sally, signing off.